0: Welcome to Psych for Business, helping business leaders understand and apply cutting-edge business psychology principles in the workplace. Hi, and welcome to Psyched for Business. My name is Richard Anderson. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, I sit down with occupational psychologist Tamrin Chappell and pick her brains about all things psychometrics. Tamron is a psychometric specialist who has consulted and applied psychometric tools across many businesses for both recruitment and development. So this is everything you've always wanted to know about psychometrics, but we're too afraid to ask. I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening. Cameron Chappell, thank you very much for joining me. Welcome to Psych for Business.
1: Lovely to be here.
0: <laughs> Great. I've been very much looking forward to having you on because we've got a, what I think is a very interesting topic today. And I was just saying before we started recording there that, that I am the layman when it comes to psychometrics. Obviously, we've developed psychometric software, but... I'm brand new to this when it comes to the ins and outs of all these different tests, questionnaires, assessments. And I think in the world of psychometrics, there's probably a lot of, dare I say, jargon or terminology that's used that is often assumed that everybody understands. And for a lot of people that use psychometrics or are looking to use psychometrics, it's quite daunting, I think. So we're going to use this time, Tamron, with an expert as you are to, I guess, demystify psychometrics or everything we have wanted to know about psychometrics for such a long period of time. But we're too afraid to ask. So we'll get into that. But before we do all of that, Tamron, would you just be happy to, to introduce yourself? So kind of who you are and what you do?
1: My official title is a Chartered Occupational Psychologist, which for those in the know and know about our profession, it just means that I'm registered with the HCPC as well as the Association for Business Psychologists and the British Psychological Society. So I'm registered with all of them so I can call myself that protected title. But basically what it means is I focus on using the models and ideas and theories from psychology in the place of work to help people be more effective at work. And I pull on different ideas too, because I'm also trained in a psychodynamic approach. So I use transactional analysis and systemic constellations and internal family systems, which are all kind of from the psychotherapeutic side of the world. And I am quite happy for those to sit alongside the hard numbers of psychometrics. So I like what they can both offer.
0: So the psychodynamic stuff—that sounds really interesting. It's maybe maybe get into that either later on, or it's probably a full new topic. That, of course, it is brilliant. So you're obviously well qualified to speak about psychometrics. How long have you been working in the world of? Well, how long have you been expert in psychometrics?
1: Well, expert's an interesting title as well. It implies yes. that I have all the knowledge and the power. I think I would say I'm a specialist, so specialist. I've maybe read more books and read more LinkedIn articles and been to more conferences, shall we say. But I uh, I started out in academia, so I was really right. interested in psychology and the psychology of language, particularly, and how language influences how you think, what happens to your language when you've had trauma, so stroke. So research and ideas and models and knowledge have always been really interesting, but I wanted to have more of a practical focus to it. So it's great to have a theory, but then how does it actually work? So I set up my own consultancy, which sounds grand. It was me. It was moving out of academia into, as my mum calls it, the real world. (laughs) But So I've always had part of my own practice, I guess it's called, and a job as well. So I've worked in various places, in a, in a psychometrics publisher, briefly, in a company that was helping to create change in the NHS, in a tech recruitment firm, in leadership consulting firms, in learning and development organisations. So that's allowed me to have quite a broad range of experiences and clients, different professions and and different approaches. And I think it's that wealth of experience and exposure to different organisations, different people, different ways of working in the professional background that they bring. That means I can feel comfortable saying I'm a specialist and have a lot of knowledge, but the expert bit, I know we're supposed to say that on our LinkedIn profile, and I haven't got it in there for the search terms, but it does sit a little uncomfortable because of the power dynamics.
0: Okay. Have you not got thought leader in there yet?
1: Oh, no, I don't think I have.
0: That's another one akin to expert, I guess, but I'll use specialist respectfully, of course.
1: It's more about my own uh, (laughs) overanalysis and psychodynamics as to whether I want to be viewed as the expert or not. I have a lot of knowledge and I'm happy to share it.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Well, we'll look look forward to that. I I think probably the easiest place to start or the most obvious place to start is what do we mean by psychometrics? psychometrics? Yeah.
1: It's both an inclusive and exclusive word, isn't it? It's a good conversation opener if people go, wow, what are those? In essence, it means psychological measurement. So psychometrics is just the measurement of psychological concepts, personality, basically. splitting the word up, yeah. Personality measurement, that's what it is. But the common old language use of the word psycho has all of that baggage that we bring to mm. it. So I think lots of people in business particularly think, oh, psychometrics, oh, they're a scary word. I don't know about them. I project onto them that they're really detailed and excluding. So it depends what you bring to the word, but it basically just means measuring personality.
0: Brilliant. So, measuring personality through psychometrics, we know that they're used for both recruitment and development, but I guess very differently.
1: Well, this is the big question that is totally always debated on LinkedIn in various stages, and it points to another question that we were going to come to, which is the difference between type and trait, and Myers yes. Briggs, and yeah. why yeah. everyone. So it all sort of comes together in some way. So strap in. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, go for it. I, I, I,
0: So why in that case, why do we use psychometrics? Why is it a good thing for a business to implement a psychometric?
1: So let's start there and then explain why, because it's a way of measuring something that's consistent in order to predict future. So businesses want to predict what's happening, right? Because then you can plan, then you can adjust, you can manage. So they want to be able to predict what's going on. We live in a really chaotic place. Even more so in the last few years than we thought was possible. So predicting how people will behave Mm. in certain environments has value to it because you you want to be able to plan and know what to expect. So in essence, psychometrics are useful because it helps you make better predictions about how people will behave in a, a role. It's not perfect I'm married to a nuclear physicist and we have had many a discussion over the years about the social psychology and personality and how can you predict something. So we talk about correlations and we've got validity and all of the terminology Mm. that's basically saying mathematically we can be certain about what it is we're saying here. But he kind of laughs and scoffs as a nuclear physicist going, there's no predictability there. But I remind him we're dealing with people, not laws of nature. So it's as good as we can get. But there is a whole range of ways of measuring people's factory settings, looking at what they uh, how they're likely to behave. And that's not to say that you won't then be able to change and learn different ways of behaving because that's in essence what we're doing as we go through our working lives. We are learning how to behave in different roles in different situations. That doesn't mean the fundamental who you are in your personality shifts, but it does mean that you learn to apply it in different roles and you learn to extend your kind of corridor of comfort about where you can work. So if you're looking at the hard theory, personality does not really change from the age of about 30, late 20s, early 40s. So if you're looking at the research and you look at a population level of, of all of the data together, there aren't large shifts in personality once you hit that kind of age 30. But if you speak to individuals anecdotally, they say, oh, I've, I've really changed in my career or something happened in my life that really was pivotal for me, and I, and I changed how I did things. So it depends on, and this is an age-old debate, whether you view personality as more mobile and human brains as able to change more, or whether there really is a genetic component that's there. That's for a whole different talk we won't go to. From my point of view, I think that we're knowing more and more about how plastic brains are in terms of being able to learn and adapt, and that's that's what we are as humans. I think we have factory settings is the way I describe it. So that's the trait level of personality. Mm. So the things that the evidence base says, if you look at one point in time and you look in two years time or three years time, there's a pretty good likelihood that they'll be pretty similar, especially when they get to be older. So that's the trait based approach where you're comparing someone to everyone else around them so you know how much of something somebody's got. So it's like height. We all have a height. We all sit somewhere on a continuum of Mm -hmm. our height and the majority of us are about the same height. So then most people are average and average doesn't mean mediocre, right? It means about the same And then there are some who are a bit taller and a little bit shorter and some who are really tall and some who are really short. So it gets narrower towards the the end.
0: Like the bell curve effect.
1: Absolutely. It's the bell shaped curve. So that's what trait personality has as its underpinning assumption. We all have some level of this bit of personality and we sit on that curve somewhere. So we're either like everyone else in the middle or we're at the extremes And the more extreme you are, the more that's likely to be a standout strength because there's not as many people as you have got it. And the less likely it is for you to be able to flex your style to work in a different way or to work with people who are at the opposite end of the scale, say.
0: So maybe that's a a strength and a development area, because I I suppose as a layman from the outside looking in, you would imagine if somebody's right at the end there and they're they're fantastic at one trait, for want of a better expression, then that's a great thing. But if they can't adapt their personalities or behaviours to the other things, that's going to be a bit of a challenge.
1: So that's why when you're looking for either development, but particularly for recruitment, Hmm. you're looking at the individual and their makeup, their factory settings, what their personality is like, And it has to be within the context of where they're operating. So someone could have a standout strength that's fabulous in the job they've done so far, really not fit for purpose in the context of the job that they're applying for because of the nature of the work, the people they're working with, the long term expectations in the role, whole manner of things. So trait personality allows you to have that conversation with, say, the hiring manager and the organization to think beyond the individual and think about the context in which they're going to be working and operating and also who their colleagues might be and what their personalities might be like and whether that's a good fit or not, because we know from the research that diversity, cognitive diversity, thinking differently is valuable for an organization, for innovation, for responding to changing context, for customers, all of those reasons. But if you haven't got the right situation set up, so you haven't got the right culture that allows people to bring that cognitive diversity mm. to bear to share it you haven't got the right psychological safety in place then it doesn't matter how diverse your team is in some ways they won't share that bring
0: ideas to the table and all yeah. of that sort of stuff because
1: they're shouted down because it's negative or whatever reason and similarly we know that diversity is good for a team so mm. we re- could recruit people that are really different But when you're working with someone who's really different from you, it's really hard, right? It's much harder than working with someone who's similar. Hmm. And so cognitive diversity is something we need. Diversity of personality is something we need in a team. And by its very nature, that makes it harder to work well together in a team. So trait personality can really help predict that for an organization. Type personality is not to be used in recruitment. Okay,
0: that was one of the questions I was going to ask you.
1: In essence, the reason is, and I think most people who just dip a little bit into this area will know that for some reason, you know you're not supposed to use one and you're supposed to use another, but they might not know why and they might not know and type and trait, which one is it, not quite sure. Hmm. In essence, we talked about that bell-shaped curve A trait tool allows you to be somewhere along there and so you can compare with other people. A type tool takes a line down the middle and forces you to decide which side of the fence you're on, you're one type or you're another. And so by doing that, you're minimising the construct of personality because you're one thing or another as opposed to oh all manner of things yeah. on this curve
0: you're forcing somebody down one particular yeah
1: and if you remember about what we said the way that mathematically a bell-shaped curve works the majority of people are average so the majority of people will go eh, sometimes i'm that side sometimes I'm that side it's not really very strong yeah. for me whereas the ones at the extreme will go yes i am that type I am an extrovert, hooray, yeah. MBTI, uh, or oh, yeah. I don't like that at all. I'm an introvert, and I, I know that this is some of the problems I've experienced because all those extroverts are talking and doing whatever it is. That is definitely me. And then the majority of people who are average go, hmm, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, which is why on LinkedIn you get this, I'm an introverted extrovert, or I'm an extroverted yeah. introvert. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you're just somewhere along that extrovert curve but you're probably average, and so you can do a bit of both. Whereas those at the extremes go, that's me, it's recognised me, it's awesome. But it's not predictable enough and it's not nuanced enough to use for a a recruitment decision because it's not uh, reproducible enough. So for those people who are at the extreme ends, type tools are probably quite reliable because they say, I'm still really, really... It's
0: it's fairly obvious that you're going to be one side or the other, yeah.
1: Whereas if you're in the middle, which most people are, Hmm. you'll go, hmm, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. And the thing about type tools is they can also ask about your whole self, inside work, outside work, and they don't always narrow down to how am I in the work setting. And because we have many roles that we play, we may be in the average on, say, extroversion, but in a work setting, we're slightly more extroverted than how we are when we're at home. Okay. It's just not as predictable. It's not as robust in terms of how confident you can be to say, when you look again at this person, they'll still be in that same spot. Whereas Trait does that a bit better.
0: It's much more con- like consistent, probably, I would imagine, legally defensible from a recruitment point of view as well. Because I would imagine yes. if you're selecting somebody based on the results of a personality type questionnaire you could probably have a few problems.
1: You should not select someone on the basis type. Ever. Yeah. No, it's a definite no, no. But people don't explain why. It's not a no as in, oh, you idiot. Why would you use that? Because that doesn't explain it at all. It's because of the way the nature of the tool doesn't allow you to have someone who's a little bit like this or a little bit more like that or it's a reductionist view of personality in essence. So it's almost like you're making a decision about someone with a blindfold on and one arm behind your back. You're Mm. not using the full tool to find out where they are. They're often used for development brilliantly because it's about team interaction because sometimes This is the first time that people have come across the idea that, oh, there's something like personality and we can be really different in our factory settings. And that might be why I really don't get on with John at work because he's at the opposite end. So for a development tool, for a team building tool, they're amazing. And it's usually the first encounter people have with these kind of tools. But they don't really look at emotional reactivity, which is one aspect of Trait tools that look at the whole of personality, emotional reactivity, or as many models call it, neuroticism, it's a psychologist's favorite. <laughs> Everybody is neurotic because of that normal distribution. We are mm. all neurotic to mm. some level, but because of the stigma around that particular word, word in yeah. our everyday use, neurotic means a certain thing and we only expect it to mean people who are very highly emotionally reactive so we tend to use in polite company emotional reactivity as the descriptor so type tools don't usually look at emotional reactivity they're looking from a much more positivist viewpoint about the rest of personality about how you make decisions how you uh, connect with others about how you organize yourselves it's looking at that side of personality It depends on the tool. Some dip a bit more in. But as a as a broad brushstroke type tools look at less of the personality range and they look at it in a reductionist way to put you in a bucket. Yes. And they are less predictable and less consistent over time because you can move move from buckets.
0: Brilliant. I mean, it's really, really interesting. Everything that you've gone through so far, Tamron, I've probably got a load of questions and quite a bit to, to unpack. So I'll, I'll just fire yeah. away if that's okay. I am really interested in going back to the type stuff that you've just talked about, mm-hmm. because I want to give a quick story about when I've used them before, and I got a lot of benefit from a development perspective. But just to go back to the trait type assessments that are typically used or often used for recruitment, as psychologists and psychometricians, how do we demonstrate the trade-based tools, of which I'm sure there are very many, yep. how do we prove that they are predictive? What are the types of measures that you would undertake to, to say that this is doing what it should be doing?
1: That's a, a, both an interesting and a tricky question in some okay. ways. happy to <laughs> launch in on my opinion on this. There are some amazing publishers out there that devote their whole time and energy into creating really statistically robust ways of showing that their tool is solid, predictable, consistent and there's a whole range of jargon as we talk okay yeah terminology, reliability, validity, construct validity yes, they're all do. there as to whether you're measuring what you say you're measuring, yes. whether you're measuring it, First time you measure it, you're measuring it the same way the second way, whether what you're measuring is actually measuring what you think you're measuring. So if you say you're looking at emotional intelligence, are you really looking at emotional intelligence or is your questionnaire just very consistent and asking about something completely different? So there's lots of statistical jargon terms and I'm not trying to minimize them because they are very solid and they're there mathematically to look at that that's usually the area that when I work with HR colleagues and in people who are less psychometrically knowledgeable, shall we say, Mm. not interested, they know that these things exist and they really just want to know, is your test the same as the others in terms of consistent, all of those things? So I don't personally think that's the big decision-maker, although if you go on a course, they often say, look at the reliability, look at the validity, look yeah. at the figure, it should be within this range. If it's a well-known test, if it's an established publisher, you can almost bet that they've got all of the work and the solidness yeah, behind it's it.
0: inevitable, plus they'll have had thousands of completions of these things and so much data to, to Absolutely. Grow.
1: I think often when I'm talking to clients about this, Yes, that's important and I don't want to minimise it, but it's the conversation I find is more useful to say, what do you want to use the tool for? How do you want to use it in your organisation? What's your view of leadership competencies, frameworks, so that then you choose the test that best aligns with what they're trying to do, how they want to work whether they've got people who are trained in the use of it, whether they haven't, whether. So there's so many tools there in the market, some very, very good and solid, some developing and growing and some that actually have a great facade of robustness. And when you poke around, it's not there. But if you go with a view of what's your credibility and questioning to say, What's your background in your tool? Where do you come from? How do you deal with this? Have you, for instance, got British Psychological Society? Just what I was about asking. Yeah. Exactly. But that is a process as well that's quite involved. So some of the more newer tools that are mm. just establishing haven't got the data yet. But that doesn't mean you can't use them. It's about going in mindfully knowing that it's a tool to yeah. start a conversation or a process. And if you use it as a tool to help you do something and you're clear on your purpose, then they are fantastic. And you can, I wouldn't advocate it, but you can even use some of the less robust tools. If it means you know the limits of what it can do in its yes. predictability and it's just for the start of the conversation with yeah. your team. i applied all before, in the right way. Yeah. yeah it's about the application of it but unfortunately because of the way the business is and because of the way we are in business and and who we are as uh, individuals it's hard to say so why is your why is this tool better than the other one and publishers are trying to sell their own tool and if they're doing their job well they should all be measuring the same thing which is the big five trait personalities or variations of such so they should be looking at the same stuff so therefore it's How are they asking about it? What do their reports look like? Does it fit with my organisational view? Can I get good support from the publisher? There's all manner of other reasons that you need to take into account when choosing a personality tool.
0: Yes. I've seen a lot of these things and privacy that we host, a lot of these newer tools as well that are going through yeah, okay. the process of trying to yeah. be, you might be trying to become accredited or certified through the British Psychological Society. And obviously that's a big task in and of itself. And yeah. I, I guess as long as they've, they've followed the principles of that, the likelihood is that eventually they will be accredited. But you mentioned just there, the big five personality traits, the yeah, yeah. big five personality yeah. traits. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say title, which uh, what the terminology, but um. Somebody once said, I mean, I can't remember who it was, that psychologists don't often agree on a lot, but they agree that, well, they all seem yeah. to agree on the five personality traits. So yeah. would you say that for the trait-based tools that we've been focusing on, the majority of them focused around those five areas, and what are those five areas?
1: Yeah, your listeners might not be old enough to get this reference it's like the ron seal approach to personality if you remember those it does exactly what it says on the tin so the big five are five (laughs) of of overarching descriptions domains of personality they are universal they're across gender they're across ethnicity they're across nationalities they're across age There are exceptions, but we know about them. On the whole, we're pretty sure after about 40, 50 years worth of research building up that the big five are the big five. Now, there's subtleties around it. And if people are interested, there's actually a a meta two that sit above it. There's research that's emerged that there's sort of plasticity and stability. And then the five sit underneath which fits more with your neuropsychology and and dopamine receptors. So the theory is still evolving and developing, but the big five has been more consistent than many psychology theories. So you're absolutely right. We don't agree on many things. We've all got opinions, but we do sort of agree on that. And still there's a little disagreement around the corners and the edges, but it's consistent enough that it's a good benchmark Hmm. to then explore What does this mean in its nuances for you? So the big five is about personality and predictability. But one of the things that can be off-putting or confusing that's not always explained properly is that the big five are talking about personality behaviors, how you're likely to manifest. But then we move into competencies. So that's more behaviorally focused How do I actually manifest my extroversion in a leadership position, for instance? So they're similar. There is an overlap between facets and personality and competencies. The good publishers that have been around for a while and established and have got a great data set will have their own competency models where they've got the personality behind it, the five, And then they've got what they know from research predicting what kind of behaviors those are going to show up as in the workplace. And they've triangulated and confirmed that by looking at other people's view of you and performance ratings and how you actually output, because personality is a theoretical construct in that sense. And so businesses often go, it's all well and good, but so what? What does this mean for how people are going to actually do things in their business? So that interface between traits, personality and competencies, some publishers do that for you. So they give you their competency based model, which absolutely can be used in recruitment and it helps organizations that kind of kind of does the thinking for them to know they look at the competencies and say, these are the ones that we know this role needs and so then you can question against those and assess against those in the recruitment process knowing that what sits underneath them is the predictability of personality but not all publishers have that so in answer to one of the questions that we discussed before we were talking about this why is a psychologist useful why should we go to someone who specializes specializes in this because it doesn't have to be a psychologist it can be someone who is just psychology informed so Mm. ABP does a great job of talking about business psychology and using the models of it. It's about understanding that personality sits underneath this and the behaviours are things that you want to see and predict. And it's not a 100% link, but you know which ones are more consistent than others. And you know that the way some of them fit together, a little cluster of those can point to a certain Nuance or a certain trickiness for a certain role. So it's more about seeing them as a predictive tool to use as a conversation, as opposed to what, in my experience, often people who've gone away without that personality knowledge or that psychology knowledge or that assessment knowledge backing them up will think, I've worked with people, I'm pretty good at reading people, Mm. I'll go on one of the publishers' courses that give me access to this tool. And then I'll go out there and apply it to everybody and everything. Whereas I think someone who's got a background in personality and psychology and assessment in that way will say there are a number of tools that sit behind me and I will pick the one that works best once I've understood what the client needs is rather than I've been on a course, I've paid for this tool, I'm going to use this tool in every situation, which it's polarizing but that's often where people are coming from if they've come to psychometrics later because they're expensive right they're expensive course, to buy expensive course. to train in so you want to get your money's worth if you've yeah. gone on that training and it's hard to then apply another one but because yeah
0: of course even what you're explaining there Tamron in terms of the differences between personalities and behaviors and behaviors are the manifestation of the personality traits that you display high or low. I think even that there, I need a psychologist to explain that, a specialist in the area, the differences between those things, I think that's crucially important. And I guess as well, if you're a psychologist and you're supporting a a client with recruiting, leadership, whoever it is across the organisation, you can, I guess, come from the outside looking in so you can be a little bit more objective in the process. You've got the expertise of how to interpret these psychometric reports and results and also have that level of objectivity as well from, from outside.
1: Yeah, My view when I work with clients is I try to advise. So it's not about saying, oh, right and wrong, because no one learns that way. It's a, here's from my experience, this works well. Here's the questions you need to consider when you make your decision. And then it's down to the client to make the decision. But I would often advocate using a trait tool for recruitment that you then use for onboarding development. So I quite like a bog off a buy one get one free offer and so if you use a recruitment tool so which is a trait tool because you won't use a type tool use a recruitment tool then you're missing a trick really if you're not then using that information to help you create a great onboarding experience for that person also identify development goals as they come in in that role and then use that for the whole team to help them fit together. So it's all about a joined up process as an organization, if you use psychometrics well, mm. then it's part of your recruitment process, which is where the high risk decisions and the costs are, right? You get the wrong people in. It's yeah. costly in money terms, but also in the people impact and the resource. So it's often easier to have a conversation with a client and they're more willing to use a psychometric at recruitment, but then it's it's sort of tidied away in a box in the recruitment only zone. And then they yeah. might go and use a type tool or something completely different for development because they need it to be more fun. Mm. Whereas there are some recruitment tools that are specifically created now to make that bridge That's to be able to work as a development tool as well. And I think why wouldn't you use the same tool if you can, because then you've got the language embedded in the organization and you're helping your line managers to understand how teams fit together and individuals fit together and they can take that knowledge into the recruitment decision. Whereas if you're using a type tool Mm. to make those development decisions, it's not robust enough to take that into a recruitment decision because it just doesn't have the nuances of it. So why not use the tool that's more in depth to start with and then just apply it in a development way and dip in. But I think that's where the skill comes because the team tools, the typing tools, and you Mm. said, I'm not sure which way it is. Basically, if you think, are you one type or another? Then that's a type tool. And then the other one is the trait one. So the typing tools have great marketing collateral. They have merchandise. They have mats on the floor they have all the things that make them fun and team development e so you want to use them you want to use those more and a trait tool is often more worthy and more academically solid and and doesn't yeah. and people can't feel the fun in it but you can still apply it in the same way and some of the some of the tools on the market specifically bridge that gap and do it very well mm-hmm. so that's where i look for a, if i'm advising an organization in adopting recruitment practices, then it's, I would say, look at these tools that you can still use for development because you want to connect those functions, which often are separate in an organisation as well. So it helps to join up the organisation too.
0: I guess that's the beauty of the position that you hold as well with the client is that you can make recommendations based on what you think is going to be best for them. And if it's going to be one that bridges the gap, you've probably got access to multiple tools and you can give them the pros and cons and all that sort of stuff around those. So just to recap, the personality traits, the big five, openness. I'm testing myself here, Tommy.
1: Sorry, I didn't tell you what they were. Ocean. So the big five is also called the ocean model. So ocean, the acronym is O for openness, C for conscientiousness, E for extroversion, A for agreeableness, and the psychologist's favourite, N for neuroticism. So openness is, on that dimension, it's about openness to... New ideas, new values, depending on which model, which mm. big five mm. model you want to go through. But it's mostly about that strategic thinking at the top end to the more operational, here and now, practical focused piece so that bigger picture blue sky thinking versus Mm. operational delivery is where it sits in a business sense and I work at the c-suite so I often get people coming and saying right we need a new chief operating officer they need to be able to set the strategy blue sky thinking but they need to be able to roll up their sleeves and actually make sure our systems work and you say okay great they sit at opposite ends of the same personality dimension. So let's have a conversation about what this role actually needs. Do you need blue sky strategic thinking? Is mm-hmm. there no one that's set the strategy already? you need that wide open view about the future and difference? Or do you need someone that's more about take what we have? and improve it and tweak it, continuous improvement. Because then that helps me know when a candidate comes and I look at their psychometrics, whether they're someone who's going to be at that blue sky end, who is less likely, not unlikely, less likely to be able to do the rolling the sleeves up and paying attention to yeah. the processes bit. Whereas if you've got someone who's brilliant at the process side of things, this not necessarily a muscle that they've used very often to do that strategic setting piece. Yeah. And Often I find people are promoted through their technical skills, their ability to get stuff done, make money for the business, Mm. pull the team together even, but with the focus of output. And then as they get more senior in the organization, it's, oh, well, now we need you to move out of that stuff that you're good at and move into strategy and think about strategy. Mm. But what you've done is you've spent the whole of your career practicing down at one end of that openness dimension and then they're going now now you've got to step up to the c-suite and the strategic piece and that's a different thing. and some people can do that because their personality underpins it and some find it much harder and so you need to set the expectations of the line manager as to what will be possible but also help them understand what development to put in place to help them be successful in the role so Psychometrics are useful for that conversation. Yeah, so, yeah, openness, conscientiousness is as we think. It's about how structured you are, how long you take to make decisions, how self-confident you are in terms of meeting your goals. So right. it's not yeah, just yeah. confidence and ambition, which is extroversion. It's about confidence in competence in that sense. Conscientiousness, extroversion is the one that most people have heard of, because we talk endlessly on LinkedIn about extroversion and introversion, but in a in a big five way, extroversion is about energy, where you get it from and where yes. you get it to. So ambition sits in there as well. That drive to achieve sits in extroversion in some models, but it is about energy and connection. So it's often about optimism and pace, how speedy you are at getting things done and how much you like to connect with people Mm. depending on the model again which is different from agreeableness which is about interpersonal sensitivity and quality and investment in relationship so you can have extroverts who are really good at connecting with people less interested in investing time in the relationship and what you see on LinkedIn is people saying, I'm an introverted extrovert. I build relationships or, you know, and it's like actually, no, you're, you're confounding extroversion yeah. in it's pure sense and interpersonal sensitivity. You can have an introvert who is very good at building relationships because they have great interpersonal skills in that agreeableness side. Yeah. Similarly, you can get an extrovert who's great at connecting with people less interested in carrying on that relationship. And they're usually the ones you meet at conferences who go, great to meet you, connect, never see them again. Or they see someone over your, over your shoulder who they think is more important and they go off that way.
0: I suppose from my perspective, I would assume that extroverts would always want to be building yeah. relationships and maintaining them. But, but it's a yeah. it's, it's really good point that you made.
1: It's about the connection. So it's like a of cell bunny in some ways. An extrovert needs to connect with their external environment mm-hmm. In order to keep their energy levels up, so they're the ones that tend to chat more, talk more, connect more with people. Yeah. But whether they're then invested in the quality of the relationship is within that agreeableness piece. Whether I ask you questions, whether I really speak to you, whether I've got good levels of trust, that's in the agreeableness side of things. So they all fit together, yeah. but they're. Yeah. So- statistically more separate so that you can look at where someone is high on one and low on the other if they're high in both then it kind of all fits with that typing approach yes you're a extrovert but most people have quite a spiky profile in that they've got high on one low on another average on some and so it's that pulling it all together that's the bit that's endlessly fascinating i think from my
0: point of view yeah it it, it really is one of the things i was going to Chatty about, and I've, I've loved the conversation so far, but I was thinking just from a, a type, personality type perspective. Yeah. So, when you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago, I said, you know, I'm a little bit ashamed to admit this, but I haven't done a great deal of personality tests, assessments, questionnaires. But we did one with the team. And the intention is, by the way, the caveat here is I am going to do more. That is 100% the intention, <laughs> the least I can do given what I do for a living. Um, yeah. But I know that there's a number of different tools that are available, and we we took on one of the type tools. It wasn't the MBTI, but it was the 32 personality types yeah. tools. And uh, we had a great time as a team, and we're a small team, and There was there was maybe okay. six of us did this exercise, and we had the reports dissected and gone through. And um, I came out as, for what this means, an ENFP. That was my personality type. Yeah. So I'm sure you can probably explain what these things mean. Yeah. In a second, but but one thing that struck a chord with what you said before is how you work with other people that might have different personality types to you. And I realised that my business partner and also Ashley, who I work I've worked very closely with for for years, they are pretty much the direct opposite personality types to me. I think at least one of them was an ISTJ it opened up a really fascinating discussion about how we started to learn more about each other. And there's probably things that each of us do in a small environment that that get on each other's nerves on occasion. Yeah, it's human, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One of the examples that that was given in the session was that if I get an email pop up, and I always thought this was because I'd always kind of worked in business development, like if I got an email, I might have got a sale in or something like that. I was always desperate to read it straight away. Whereas my colleague, Ashley, it distracts her so she'll ignore yeah. the email so I'm thinking why should I not reply to that email yeah because that's what I would do it's just different and I, th- I thought that okay. was really really interesting so I wondered if you, you wouldn't mind just spending a couple of minutes on these type tools so let's say I'm an ENFP Ashley or, or Matt's an ISTJ and so you mentioned about the differences before but I mean what would you do with a you know a small team or what would the recommendation to be yeah. for people using a type tool?
1: there are some great type tools in the market. There are some less than great ones. Mm. And I measure greatness in terms of how well what they're asking you to do to file yourself into one bucket or another is true to the concept of what they're trying to file you into in that sense. So I use type tools all the time with teams, ones particularly that say, we're new to this, We want to come together. We want to explore what this means for us. And we don't want to go too deep yet because I've read on your list that you're a psychologist and that's a bit too much. So we're not going down the psychodynamic route, but we'll we'll start with this. It's about an exploration. It's about a conversation. So it's there as a lens to basically bring into awareness some of the things that people knew already that I do it differently from you. And sometimes that's you're successful at it. And sometimes I am, because Mm -hmm. there's different contexts out there. But what happens is, because of the psychodynamics, we often move into blame and I'm okay, you're not okay. Or if there's no psychological safety, it's uh, we should do what we're told to do. So there's all of those other layers that sit on top of Mm -hmm. personality. So personality is a very good, safe way in to. whatever you need to discuss and wherever you're ready as a team to discuss. So I'm often called in by clients when teams are not working very effectively, usually because they've tried various things first and it's not, it's not helped. It's not done something to help shift. But I do sometimes get to work with just normal old teams Uh, And that's uh, joyous because you you kind of go, right, we're going to use a type tool. Let's get in there and just explain what it means. So the way I go about it is I usually have plenty of conversations up front with individuals to help them understand where they are first before they come into the team. So the way that you set up the conversation is, I think, where the USP is in some ways for being a psychologist or for having this kind of people knowledge part that bring to it because we know about safety as in personal safety about risk and so you can structure your interventions with a team knowing that that feels on the surface like it's a trivial decision but it actually makes a fundamental difference so for instance one of these is if I'm new to working with a team who they don't know me necessarily and I don't necessarily know about them but they're curious enough to do something with a personality tool then there's lots of conversations up front to explain what the tool is to answer the questions that you're asking there's no stupid question just where's your curiosity come and I'll answer that in the best way I can in a pragmatic way but they are not perfect and they are not to judge so you're sort of setting the scene of this is an exploration and we're coming together to explore what this means they're not right or wrong there's no right or wrong in personality it's how far along the extremes am I so I know how much I can change or not and how much I'm going to be different from everyone else That's really useful. So if you're at an extreme, that means there are far fewer people out there that are like you. And the majority of people you work with are going to be really different. So that's good to know. And I've had many people go, oh, I always knew that, but I didn't realize I was on the 98th percentile, say. So that makes a lot of sense. So then you go right from your awareness, everyone's going to be. Say less conscientious than you. So that allows you to then have the conversation with your colleagues to look, I know where I am. I know this is what I need for myself, for my work. You're at the opposite end. You like to get things done at the last minute. Mm. How are we going to actually productively work together about this? And what will this mean that we put in place for ourselves so that we have done that before it gets tricky? I'm originally from the Lake District. And when you went out walking, so we used to go with the school trips, you'd always have a foul weather alternative route. So if the weather was really crummy, which it is often in the Lake District, you had to give somebody your foul weather alternative route. So you might be going up on the fell, but if the weather was really crummy, you were going to come down the valley. So. It was before mobile phones. If you got lost, they'd know the two places to look for you. So I often use that as a foul weather alternative route is you have the conversations up front about what are we going to do when it gets tricky? How are we going to figure out how we make decisions together, given that we've got different decision making styles? And so all of that thing around setting a team charter, you can label it as that in a leadership book development mm. approach mm. but what it's trying to do is create some resilience in the team when the going is good when yes. you've got that good relationship because at the good times people get along with it and bumble along yeah. it's when things are tricky so when you're under pressure when you're stressed yeah. when you're not feeling so well when the business is doing not so well when you meet someone who's really different and it's and it throws the team and so thinking about this in a transactional way up front then gives you not only permission to raise it as a topic when it gets tricky but it also gives you a bit of resilience and a plan a foul weather alternative route.
0: I love the analogy yeah I I, I absolutely see that and uh, that's fantastic Tamron. From my perspective if I look at the six or seven members of my team and I've already already told you the uh, the examples of people having the direct opposite personality types to me to ensure that we work as productively as we possibly can and we all get on in harmony and all that sort of stuff, what would your recommendations be to a small team, for example, that have yeah. lots of different personality types?
1: Yeah, that stuff we were just talking about around the team charter and, and the resilience and the foul weather alternatives, that is all valuable time spent for a team at yeah. any stage, but definitely when they're coming together. So that etiquette of how will we work together, that sort of meta-discussion. We're great at coming together and talking about our outputs and who's going to take what task, but the conversation around how will we go about this, how will we communicate can always be done, even around a project. How are we going to manage this together, knowing our styles? But I think there's something really useful just to take away in some ways around meetings. So for me, in the many years I've been working with Teams, Meetings are sort of the make or break place Mm. in many ways. And so there are some quite fundamental things you can do in a meeting, which speaks to the inclusion piece as well. If you're trying to create, if you're bringing cognitive diversity, as well as visible diversity to your organisation, then it's about whether people feel like they belong or not, whether they're welcome. So psychological safety is crucial to set up. But some of the practical things you can do is... To know about extroversion, introversion is key one and conscientiousness. So that Mm -hmm. kind of P and J in MBTI speak at at some level. But the extroversion, introversion one, knowing how extroverts think and talk and act, and how introverts do, can help you structure a more productive meeting that is inclusive for everyone. And if you're looking at the inclusivity from the lens of personality, then we all have personalities. We all have somewhere along that bell-shaped curve our personality. So if you're thinking about it that way, then inclusivity can sometimes bridge the gap of where the polarizations are in in diversity in other ways. But that's for another conversation. (laughs) Some of the examples practically are extroverts and conscientiousness because it's confounded because that's about how organized you like to be in some ways and how structured Mm -hmm. you are extroverts are usually able to think on their feet talk things out and in fact the talking itself formulates ideas and the connecting with others allows them to have those ideas so extroverts often don't finish their sentence and go somewhere else if they're high on openness and ideas as well and so in a meeting they can blag a meeting they can wing it they can discuss and chat which means If they're lower on conscientiousness, they might not have read all the papers about the meeting. They might not have got the agenda out in time if they're the one leading it. They might not have prepared enough and thought about what do we want to get out of this meeting. And it becomes a talking shop. And so the more reflective thinkers, either they can't get a word in edgeways or they haven't been given enough information in advance to start to process and think so they can't bring their contribution to the meeting. So sometimes you see people who are new on this journey and they go, ah, oh, I've been on a course or I've watched a TED Talk or something. Me as the extrovert, uh, that's enough for me. What about you, introvert? What's yes. your thinking on this? And it's that, and the introvert goes, nah, I haven't had time <laughs> to think yet. And yeah, the extrovert definitely. goes, come on, just give me your freshest thinking. And you know, no, it's a fundamental different process. And you need to have brought some preparation in advance for everyone actually not just for more reflective thinkers everybody i think will appreciate a well-run meeting that you know what you're going to focus on there's an agenda somewhere even if it's a loose one but you've all agreed in advance and you've got some information you come it's got a clear structure you know what you want to get out of it you check in with people you allow a bit of chit chat at the beginning because that's good for connection and for mm. building trust and humanity. And the extroverts can do that chat and those who are high on agreeableness can connect and ask people. But you've also got the structure for those who like to stay task focused that 10 minutes in, we start the agenda. So I would say once you've just explored and had a conversation with your colleague and said, oh, look where I am on whatever scale or cho- you choose, yeah. oh, that's where you are. Oh, let's talk about where we go. Then focusing on a really good quality meeting is where I think you can make the biggest gains for different personalities.
0: I think meetings is is a huge thing. And I think a lot of this as well, Tamron, is is knowledge of, of the importance of these tools. And, you know, I would imagine a lot a lot of larger organisations and big established businesses will all know the benefits and the merits of personality traits, types, questionnaires, whatever they might be. But I think for small businesses, you know, despite the fact that we built technology to deliver yeah. these things, yeah. actually using them, it wasn't until I'd, I'd used them and seen how beneficial they could be that I've, I've now decided this is massively important that we need yeah. to, keep, to, to keep on this. So I think... For people to be equipped with that knowledge of how important these things are is massively important. Hopefully, podcasts like this will helping people uh, it, right? helping people do that. But, uh, yeah. but Tamron, listen, th- thanks so much for for talking through that. It's been really, really interesting to listen to. I've certainly learned a huge amount in the last hour or so, and I'm I'm sure the audience will have done as well. You've talked a little bit throughout, but tell us a little bit about how you can support businesses and the types of projects you get involved with.
1: Yeah. So I called in at various levels, really, for recruitment purposes. So I write personality profiles for hiring practices. I tend to do that as an associate because organizations aren't doing that all the time, especially at at the senior level where they tend to buy someone in because it's a high risk decision and they will go, "Okay, this is the one where we'll go and find a psychologist to help Mm -hmm. us with this. I would love to do more further down the organization, but I know there's uh, restrictions in terms of costing and price, but there are newer tools that are coming on the market that embed the same philosophy and the same robustness, but their price point is a bit lower. And I think Mm -hmm. people creating their own psychometric tools, which is what you offer, gives some of that opportunity as well. So I go in at the recruitment piece and I love that bit. It's like fitting people jigsaws together. But my passion lies in working with teams in how they fit together, how effective they are. And I really like working in startups, yeah. particularly tech startups yeah. Yeah. or engineering, places traditionally where they might not have had access to the ideas of personality and where they have, they might have been dismissive because as I'm married to a nuclear physicist, you know, it's like, the, Ooh, what load of old rubbish that is soft skills. It's that side. I actually really, really like working in that space because the simple conversations around how to make teams work better together, how to help people fit better together is often really, really appreciated and can make quite radical changes for a technology team say or for an IT function that I've got to try and work with those those people in the rest yeah. of the organization yeah. so i think psychometrics are really useful in that space to have a bit of data to go here you are you're on the 98th yeah. percentile so 97% of the population are going to be quite different from you on this so yeah. this is why you might need to adjust and you might need to do this so i like working with teams in that way but particularly around startups, because yes. it can add so much value. There's lots of money in startup land, particularly in tech space mm-hmm. at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so investment is thrown at people who are ambitious and driven yeah, yeah. and have an idea. And there's not enough knowledge out there around the interpersonal That's dynamics awesome. and how people fit together in small teams. There's nowhere to hide if you don't get on with a colleague and it's such a fast changing world that there are so many pressures that I think personality and a knowledge about personality would make the biggest difference in that space. I totally
0: agree with that yeah.
1: That's where I like to work but usually where I'm bought into work is in big corporates and in uh, recruitment because Mm um further along the journey and knowing what these tools do, they know the business value of it, they know the risks associated with it, and they have a budget that they will allocate to it. Yeah. So that's where I am, mostly.
0: Well, that's fantastic, Tamron. We'll put your details as part of the, the blog yeah. post if so you'd be happy for us, too. And this will go out alongside a transcript blog and i'll tidy it up because we've been using some ai transcript software and on one of them it said uh, I, i'm your horse richard anderson instead of horse. <laughs> so it's it's still not perfect yet yeah. all i do i do have a few laughs and hopefully the majority of people know that it's a transcript and it's, it's not my written english but anyway awesome. but thanks ever um, so much for the time
1: Flat bowels, i think flat vowels, vowels, Yeah, don't yeah. always translate on no they
0: don't like you know, quite clearly <laughs> there you go Brilliant. Thanks, Tamara, and Enjoy the rest of the
1: day. Thank you for letting me extrovertedly talk at you, with you, alongside you.
0: I <laughs> really enjoyed, enjoyed, it. enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Psych for Business. For show notes, resources, and more, visit evolveassess.com.